This show is sponsored by FIS. Welcome to Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech radio show and podcast. I'm Brett King. And I'm Jason Henricks. Every week since 2013, we explore the personalities, startups, innovators, and industry players driving disruption in financial services. From incumbents to unicorns, and from cutting-edge technology to the people using it to help create a more innovative, inclusive, and healthy financial future. I'm J.P. Nichols, and this is Breaking Banks. Those in the U.S. are very familiar with this. Those listeners outside of the United States, however, um, February is Black History Month. And one of the things that we're leaning into with Breaking Banks is we always look at inclusivity is not just, you know, historical facts around, you know, black and money, but really what's the future of black finance? Exciting show today. We kick off with Carmen Perez, the founder and CEO of the Much app, a budgeting apps where she and I spar on, do budgeting apps really work? And if you've ever had the nightmare that you've forgotten to do something, say, pay your student loan and find yourself, you know, actually in court as a result, well, Carmen's got the story for you. In the second half, a crossover episode with our dear friends at the Next Gen Banker. Absolutely love David's interview with Delicia Hand, who is the Director of Financial Fairness at Consumer Reports. And even if you're not in the United States, her insights around privacy, inclusivity, and transparency transcend borders. Uh, a must-listen-to episode when we think about inadvertent bias in a lot of our behaviors. All right, Carmen, I'm just going to call it out there. Budgeting apps don't work. Change my mind. Well, hopefully I can do that by the end of the session. I'm ready to to dive into all the things because they do work. You just need the right tools in order to get them to work for your finances. Well, so what's broken then? If you look at why they haven't worked uh, with all the different attempts, what's wrong with the tool set? Yeah, so... I think just looking back when the reason why I even started the company that I've started is because when I was going through my own personal finance journey, obviously there is a graveyard of PFMs out there. I Even with that, I still couldn't find a solution that worked for me. And really it was around, around this financial isolation that I felt. Um, you know, the thing about personal finance is that it's so nuanced in nature. It's in its name, personal it's, it's pers- personal is personal, right? Yeah. Um, but honestly, it doesn't have to be that way. And I think that's why, you know, we see all the this graveyard of personal finance management applications out there that are either kind of like hitting the nail on the head or just they're completely missing the mark. And I believe right now there's still a, a slither of blue ocean um, waiting to be explored. And that's around this idea of completely flipping the personal notion on its head and building, you know, community around money to make it less taboo. I was worried you were going to flip it on its head and say, this is about in impersonal uh, finance, but so hedges around uh, then the um, idea of community, how do you engage community then in how this works? Yeah. So, you know, uh, I, I think more than half of Americans, there's some stats out there. Um, don't quote me because I might, you know, get this wrong here, but there's some stats where 
It says uh, half, more than half of Americans are embarrassed talking about their finances. 77% of Americans feel anxious about their financial situation. And look, I was one of the, those, those folks, right? Um, I was completely embarrassed about my finances. I had a job offer rescinded from the top investment bank in the world because I had terrible credit. Um, so it, I, again, felt financially isolated until I got to the point of, hey, look, I got sued for a student loan. That's you know part of my story. And then I had to put this out there on the internet um, because one, my job was at risk. I had to self-report if I got a judgment on my credit report. Um, and equally, I was just tired of being behind closed doors because I was drowning in debt for so long, right? That um, the the not being able to talk about it, not being open about it, not being transparent with my friends in terms of, hey, let's go to brunch when I really don't have the money to go to brunch. Um that's where, you know, the, the idea of community comes into play because so many people behind closed doors feel financially isolated. Um, and that's not from a standpoint of just like, Hey, I don't make enough. Right. Um, that's a part of it, but it's just, they have no one to actually be able to talk openly and candidly about their finances with. So if we're so embarrassed about talking about our money and, you know, this even comes up in marriages, talk about things that are crazy that, you know, one of the number one causes of divorce, well, I think it is the number one after infidelity is money. Yeah. And at the heart of that is often your failure to talk about money and get on the, the same page related to it. So if you can't talk to your spouse of all people, you know, about money, how do you get people to engage in the community to talk about money? Because aspirationally, I love you know, what you're talking about, this flipping it on the head, leveraging the community, that's the, you know, kind of the crowdsource model is the only way you can scale something to the, to this level to pull people up. How do you actually get them over the hump of that embarrassment? Yeah, so it's talking about it. And I think, honestly, what's rooted in my story is a bunch of personal finance failure that makes it easier and more inviting for individuals to come on the platform and start talking about their their finances and in an open and candid way. And look, I'm fine to be that, that, um, you know, person that just throws all my dirty laundry on the internet for the sake of being able to help others, because that has helped other people. Um, you know, I started sharing my journey online on Instagram and now I have, you know, over 65,000 followers on that platform just by sharing my story. Um, and that is filled and littered with embarrassment. And then I'm getting flooded with DMS. Like, I thought this was, I was the only person that this happened to. Um, your story is so inspirational. I see that you've been able to turn it around. So the connection is there in terms of, again, eliminating that financial isolation and adding a layer of community where honestly, it's hard to do if, if you are building a brand that no one trusts you. And mm -hmm. I have a, a personal story deeply connected and rooted in um, despite financial isolation and financial blunders that has made it easier for people to connect, um, through our community. Cause they look at me and say, Hey, my finances aren't that bad. Right. <laughs> oh man. I mean, you remind me of one of those, uh, rip off inspirational posters that I had. One of my office said, that maybe your life's work was to be a warning to others. Oh yeah. Like I, I literally feel like that. Someone called me on a, another podcast, the uh, financial force gump. I just, you know, kept trying to figure it out. So you have this storied resume of working in financial institutions, 
right? You know, from some of the biggest, like, you know, city to some of the oldest, like Brown Brothers, Harriman, like, how did you feel like you were making these blunders? And you're obviously a very intelligent you know, person. You know, why do intelligent people still make bad choices when it comes to money? It's a lot of things, right? And I think that's when, especially in marginalized communities, um, that that's where it, it becomes very nuanced. I per I I personally studied finance, right? I got my my bachelor's degree in finance, and then went on to work at different investment banks. And where my relationship with money started to form was early on in high school when I was working. Um, I worked at a nursing home. I was doing housekeeping. I was cleaning, um, and it just never seemed like I could get enough. And it was my relationship with money. You know, you, you might hear this term like financial trauma. It's a real thing. My financial trauma really came at the height of um, getting sued for my student loan, right? But more so, um, it, it all started, my money habits and my relationship, I think came from seeing my mom struggle as a single parent um, and always figuring it out, right? And I took on this mental, mentality, excuse me, subconsciously, Think, I can always figure this out. And that's what just started rippling through my finances. You know, it was always paycheck to paycheck with terrible financial mistakes because in the back of my mind, I had this default of, oh, I'll make this work. I can figure it out. Well, so how do you reprogram yourself? What has been your journey towards financial wellness? Oh, um, so that that <laughs> that piece is, you know, everyone has a catalyst, right? I think to get them activated and engaged around their finances, whether that be um, getting a new job, losing their job, getting married, uh, purchasing a big asset, um, uh, all different kinds of things, right? Get us activated around our money. In my case, the reprogramming kind of started around, so it wasn't bad enough to have bad credit, right? I already had a job offer rescinded from bad credit. I was paying 18.5 or excuse me, 9% interest, somewhere around there. So 7% interest on a car. So I was literally basically financing my car on a credit card interest rate essentially. Um, that wasn't still bad enough. I had no, no savings. That wasn't bad enough, but my catalyst was getting sued for my student loan. Um, and that's where the reprogramming really started because then now everything was kind of on the line again. Um, at the beginning I said, you know, I would have to self-report a judgment on my credit report, uh, to the company that I was working at at the time. Um, and you know, you could get fired for less. Um, and financial services, I, I feel like in 08, you know, the, when people were putting on bankruptcies, that was kind of like, okay, you know, at the, a lot of people in the industry were going through it, but once everything yeah. stabilized, you know, if you try to go and work, the only way that, uh, financial institutions can, um, understand your risk as an employee to the bank is through your credit report. Are you a flight risk? of transferring money from other people's accounts because that's what you're dealing with on a daily basis and to your own to cover your own obligations. Um, so yeah, I, it, it, the, my catalyst and my reprogramming started at uh, getting sued. I had to figure out that out very quickly um, with less than you know $3,000 saved in my account. I was getting sued for $30,000. So that was the catalyst to begin to change your own relationship with money. What was the catalyst to go start a company? Because you know, look at the institutions you've worked at, and you know, you have taken some risk in having you know put a startup on it. But going and being a founder is like a scary thing. Oh, it's it's wildly crazy. Um, but I think that through my experience in finance and being deeply passionate about it, so the reason why I studied, I was like obsessed with just the stock market, the economy. 
Um, I eventually wanted to, a while ago, I had tweeted this out. I wanted to do, uh, get my master's in quantitative finance. I actually really, really understand, like love the economics and just how money moves around the world. Mm. Um, so I was already deeply passionate about that. That's why I was working in the industry. But what really wanted me to start my own company is one, like I said, I couldn't find a solution that worked for me when I had to literally like overnight change this pattern of behavior that I had grown accustomed to and was carrying around like a designer handbag for a majority of my life. I had to literally flip a switch and change my behaviors. Um, So I said, if this is hard for me, somebody that's working in the industry that's formally studied this, I can't imagine how this must be for the vast majority of other you know, Americans that are just trying to manage their day-to-day finances. I got friends that are nurses that work in communication, like all, you know, all different kinds of industries. Right. Um, so the, the passion for me to create a company, I always knew that, you know, studying business and and finance could be an avenue to be able to start it, but really it was just being deeply, um, you know, passionate about understanding finances and then really honing in on understanding my own personal finances and all of the psychological kind of things that go into that. And and again, to your point of uh, reprogramming overnight um, is what made me want to start my company. And more so just because I had some validation. I started the community or audience online on Instagram. I sold 500 spreadsheets and I was like, why are people buying these old school Excel spreadsheets when there are personal finance management applications out there? This makes no sense to me. Um, and it's because I baked in my solution to pay off $57,000 of debt in two years and nine months is what attracted people to, you know, what I was offering. So let's talk about the entrepreneurial journey. What's been the highest high so far? Highest high is um, getting into tech stars. I think the resiliency around that has been interesting. I've uh, applied to uh, tech stars. I guess a while ago when actually when I was in college, I didn't write, it was a Facebook memory that came up and I couldn't remember that. I always wanted to eventually start my own company. And then I applied in 2022 or excuse me, 2020, um, didn't get in and getting into tech stars was just, it's been the highest high so far because, um, it's really helped catapult us into this next level of being able to launch the company and get it out there in the wild for folks to use. All right. Take us to the lowest low. Lowest low is um, definitely pitching and, you know, getting, I think, investors on board, but also trying to navigate this space in a way that makes the most sense for the company. So the lowest low is getting investors on board, really convincing them and getting them to believe in the idea of community as much as I believe in it and making sure I'm working with the right folks. Yeah. Well, I mean... Raising as a founder, as a person of color, amplified by raising as a woman, right? Like that is not the Venn diagram that says it's easy to go raise venture money and, you know, throw in, you know, a difficult space and a very different approach to it. So what have you learned in the, the money raising process? What would you share for other entrepreneurs? Yeah, what I've learned so far is, you know, control what you can control. And that's doubling down on traction. So maybe you don't have the relationships, or, you know, the connections, which I've joined groups now that are hoping to bridge the gap for underserved and underrepresented founders. Um, A group that I'm in is called Goody Nation. That's one of them. Um, And these accelerators help as well. But 
I think, you know, my best advice to to founders as I'm still on this journey, right, is doubling down on what you can control and that's traction, proving it out to not only yourself, um, it's great to prove it out to investors, but I think it's more important to prove it out to yourself. Is this idea viable? And are we onto something here? Yeah. When you look to the future, what's up next for much in um, you know, 2023? You're a year in now, the app is up. Um, what is 2023 going to bring for you? Yeah. So we are, you know, honing in more on our distribution channel. I know this is a, this is a little more investor esque. <laughs> Um, but what it looks like for us is en- engaging our community a lot more. We're seeing a lot of success come out of the different events and things that we're doing on the platform to help people stay engaged and get engaged around their money. Um, and we're also, you know, exploring the corporate wellness space as well. Um, if we can prove this out, not only on the consumer side, there might be an even a even wider opportunity in the corporate wellness space to be able to, you know, connect companies through the aspect of community through that lens. What's been the biggest surprise, you know, now that you have users and, you know, maybe it's, you can see it in the data, or maybe it's, you've heard this in stories told back to you. What's the biggest surprise in terms of what much has been able to accomplish in changing people's finances? Yeah, I think like the biggest thing and where we are, my unique insight comes into play the most is I think people take for granted in the fintech space, um, the level of financial literacy that's out there. You know, you can kind of say like, oh, you know, like it's, you should understand what an ETF is and not qualify that. We throw around so much jargon. It's like, okay, we're used to these different words, but um, what I've been the most surprised by and and most proud of are the users on our platform that are really working towards saving their first thousand dollars. And that might seem so minuscule, but a couple of years ago, 2016, I was worried about filling my my, my tank up with gas. I would always be checking my, my app. So the thing that I'm most proud of is the thing that I'm still most proud of today, regardless of, you know, uh, starting a company, working on Wall Street, doing all these things, is being able to go to the gas pump, um, knock on wood, and not having to check my bank account. And I see that happening for users on our platform in a very meaningful way. And it just, it, that's the most surprising thing. Um, you know, it's surprising to get one user on, let alone, you know, thousands. And it's just, it's it's incredible to see these these journeys this small momentum in the community of people sharing, Hey, I got a raise or, Hey, I, you know, I maxed out my, my Roth IRA. Hey, you know, I just hit a thousand dollars on the savings challenge. It's, it's inspiring. And has to be motivating when you're in the depths of the entrepreneurial journey. Um, We'd love to hear you as you think about, you know, your own financial journey related to this, what advice would you give your younger self? If you could, you know, roll back to, you know, call it the eight-year-old Carmen, what, what advice, or you tell me the age that you want to be giving the advice. Yeah, I would start, I'd probably say Carmen in college where, you know, things were fun to put on credit cards and do all that stuff and max them out and not, you know, give two flies about, um, my finances. I think if I could go back and say, Hey, just hone, like hone in, there's people that are retiring early at 35. You are ambitious enough to want to do that. And if you knew about that idea, the financial independence retire early movement, the FIRE movement, you would be doing things differently right now. I'm telling you. 
Um, so it's just honing in, getting more curious about, you know, retirement being a number and not an age. And I think that everything would change for me. <laughs> That's very <laughs> well in, in part of this, my wife worked on this research when she was at Digitas for one of the um large wealth firms, you, the young self has a very hard time visualizing your older self, that retiring self, and therefore has trouble making decisions that are in that older self's best interests. It sounds a little bit like that's what you're saying is the, you know, Carmen in college sounds like it could be a great sitcom. Uh, but Carmen in college, you know, think about, you know, Carmen, you know, wanting to retire before the age of 65. Yeah. And she would, I'm so I would, I wouldn't do that. It's just, I didn't have the example or even have it on my radar, the exposure to knowing that there's actually more. And that would have given me the goalpost to work towards. Other than that, I had just seen what almost every, the average American sees. You're always going to be in debt. You're always going to have, you know, student loan debt. It's, it, it seems like it's never ending. Right. Um, so I just fell into that kind of mindset of, well, you know, I'm always going to have credit card debt. I'm always going to have a car payment, something to that effect. Um, when that just wasn't, you know, the truth. Well, I love that angle. What other kind of we take as, you know, gospel pieces of our relationship with money do you think are just flat wrong? Like the, it is not just a given that you're going to have debt um, and credit card debt and everyone, you know, struggles with that. What other kind of misnomers do we have out there? Oh, big myth is, you know, when I make X, I'll get better with money. No, you you have to, you know, be a good steward over what you got now. Because when it comes, you know, and it gets bigger, which I hope for everyone, um, you know, salary wise or earning potential, um, your, your, your habits are going to carry over into that. So, you know, I was making the same mistakes, the exact same mistakes that I was making, making $50,000 as I was, you know, at $100,000. The more it's, you know, I think it's Biggie Small says, you know, more money, more problems. Like it's, <laughs> and maybe I, you know, it, 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 that's a real thing. So I think it's a big myth for a lot of folks to, when I make more money, yes, you might be, you know, incrementally a little more happier. Um, but with that, if you aren't managing your money correctly at whatever level you're at now, it's not going to get better when you make more. It really isn't. Yeah. Those bad habits don't seem to, uh, go away with scale. No. And there's what the, the stat out now, you know, over 50% of, uh, Americans that make six figures are living paycheck to paycheck. I was one of them. Yeah. Um, so before we wrap up here, where do you go to learn about money? Do you have books you recommend blogs, um, favorite podcasts? Ooh, I love, um, I, I don't read, as many money books now, unless it's someone in the personal finance space that I follow I'm friends with, um, and they come out with a book, but, um, I love YouTube and just learning about, um, different historical things that have happened as it relates to money. Um, uh, the little, it's like, what is it? The Warren Buffett's, um, excuse me, no, uh, John Bogle's, uh, little red investing book for index yep. funds is great. I might've gotten that title wrong. Sorry. It's behind me somewhere. Um, uh, simple path to wealth is great as well. Um, and then, you know, just some other books off the top of my head, millennial, uh, broke millennial. She has some great books, but yeah, I, I love to read money books. Aren't again, if a friend comes out with a book, I'll, I'll read it. 
Um, but you know, watching YouTube, his, the history of money and different um, aspects, learning about credit and the credit industry and the banking industry, and where that all kind of came from, and the the theories behind, you know, why it started, um, or excuse me, the genesis of of why half of these products that we use and where they came from and how they started. That's very interesting to me. Um, but really it's just trial and error. I mean, I got a lot under my belt now at this point <laughs> as it relates to money mistakes. Um, you know, I just kind of pick it up on the fly. I love learning new things, but really my go-tos are, um, podcasts. There's journey to launch black women, Jamila, Soufrant, great, um, uh, podcasts in terms of, of all things money. Um, yeah. Fantastic. If people want to learn more about much, where can they do that? Um, you can go over to the site, www.usemuch.com. Follow on Twitter um, at usemuchapp. And, um, you know, or you can follow me on my, my, my Instagram. It's at make real sense. That's my personal finance brand. Um, and it's make real sense all over the internet, the, the internet. So you can, anytime you Google that, I'll come up. Um, and I'm on everything. So Awesome. Well, thanks for taking the time to chat with us about your journey, Carmen. Thanks so much, Jason. I appreciate it. The financial world is being shaken to its core. Macroeconomic pressures are rising. Disruptors are redefining traditional business models. And innovative technologies and experiences are evolving faster than ever. How can you find your feet on the ground that's constantly shifting? You have to read the Global Innovation Report from our partners at FIS. From embedded finance and ESG to crypto, decentralized finance and the metaverse, FIS pinpoints the trends you need to watch and explains how innovation can give you an advantage in both good times and bad. Discover how the latest innovations could affect your business. Explore the research today by visiting www.fisglobal.com slash global innovation report. FIS, advancing the way the world pays, banks and invests. Welcome to the Next Gen Banker podcast, where we explore what's next in banking and talk with the innovators responsible for creating positive change in the financial sector. I'm your host, David Ryling, and I'm very excited to welcome Delicia Reynolds-Hand today. Uh, Delicia, thank you for being on the Next Gen Banker podcast. David, thank you for having me. Yeah. And Delicia, before we get started, just a little reminder for our audience to stick around and hear our musical feature at the end of each episode. Uh, each Next Gen Banker episode showcase one artist from somewhere around the globe and representing a wide range of different genres. So uh, check it out. It seems to be a, a fan favorite here. So Delicia, just a little bit about your background. Uh, you are currently the Director of Financial Fairness at Consumer Reports. Uh, before joining uh, Consumer Reports, you spent a decade at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, the CFPB, uh, specializing in consumer education, advocacy, and external affairs. And just for an uh, audience note, that's where you and I met uh, for the first time on intersecting with the Community uh, Bankers Advisory Council. And prior to that, uh, Delisa, you, you have your law degree. You spent years working uh, as an attorney and counsel uh, before getting into finance. And maybe on that point, Delicia, um, you worked in the U.S. House of Representatives 
And how do you take your your time there in your law background? And how does that get you to finance? Um, sure. I mean, I, I oftentimes I say, you know, I, I started my career and got into finance um, through my Scadden fellowship. So I started my career as a Scadden fellow um, that's affiliated with Scadden Arts. And um, I had been doing some development work in grad school, so this is eons ago, <laughs> and um, decided to go to law school, focus on uh, development work and development law, and was doing some clinical work, um, community economic development. So kind of cut my teeth in housing um, and those kinds of issues, working on opportunity finance type issues, but then I had the opportunity through the fellowship to design my own work. And what I wanted to do was think about um, the role that uh, a sort of transactional or corporate practice could have in moving LMI communities from what I call subsistence. So I think legal services is most known for crisis intervention and helping um, in urgent circumstances. But, um, you know, given the, the work that I'd done prior in development, I was really wondering about how you could use the law and um, transactional practice to move communities from subsistence to sustainability. So, what that concretely meant is new Americans, poor working class Americans, and helping them to start their own businesses. So I organized things like worker cooperatives, um, taxi co-ops, credit union, and I sort of got into finance development that way. And then on the Hill, I was there during the Great Recession. And so was part of the scurry of policymakers and staffers who were trying to figure out, okay, well, what exactly is a derivative swap? Um, you know, and so it was, was there during um, that time where we had to learn about these things, um, but also then develop policy around these things. And I think that really framed my perspective about how policy around finance um, is developed. Should it be developed just in crises? Um, should we be develop a more affirmative posture towards what finance can do for communities? So um, that's how I make the connection anyway. Oh, that's fantastic. And what, uh, gosh, in my world, that's the two ends of the spectrum of, you know, the corporate derivative world of that time, particularly and the sophistication or lack thereof around that, um, all the way to the development side, which seems in its essence to be uh, very basic in terms of, you know, but it's the beginning of a financial inclusion and the importance yeah. of people getting access to the system, whether it's for a business or, or personal reasons. So if I had to take that and maybe fast forward you into 2022, now you moved into a, a new role as Director of Financial Fairness uh, at Consumer Reports, and maybe you could tell us a little bit about what um, financial, what your new role entails, but also how do you approach uh, financial fairness? What does it mean to you? Yeah, uh, great question. So in the interim, spent 10 years at the Bureau and yeah. um, then wanted to, uh, the CFPB, and then wanted to start the next chapter. So the next chapter for me was really getting my head, hands, everything into 
financial innovation um, and tethering back to some things. So is there an opportunity to shape the direction of financial innovation? So at CR, um, it's our, our vision for a fair financial system or fair digitized financial system, mm -hmm. as I often say, because um, I, in my view, I take the long view. Um, there's always been innovation in finance um, and the digital aspect and um, has been around from for a long time. Um, I go back and think about when, you know, Chase Quick Pay is now Zelle, right? And this is right. um, from back in the, the 90s. Um, so in, in my view, what we're trying to achieve is a system where consumers can achieve what they want. They can spend, save, borrow, invest safely, privately, um, without predation, um, and uh, digital finance products um, work to improve their financial outcomes. Um, so what affirmatively should products um, try to achieve for, um, for consumers? Got it. And so as you see this role, and I would say, I agree with you. I, I think there's always been financial innovation. It seems with the space and place of fintech and the digital innovation that we're seeing now, um, in my opinion, it seems to have it's speeding up or it's happening uh, in a shorter time frame. And um, in that, so when you think you're of your role at Consumer Reports, how does uh, how, I mean, your lens in regards to not only effective and fair, but then then equitable. What role does Consumer Reports play in in, in kind yeah. of setting that foundation? Uh, sure. Great question. So the role that we play is really bringing or what I'm doing is leading a portfolio of work to evolve uh, what everyone knows, uh, knows CR for, which is. Right ratings and evaluations, right? So right now you can go on our website and um, or use our app, et cetera. Um, but as a member, you can get um, trusted, reliable, independent product ratings. And so um, the work that I'm doing at CR is to evolve that into the digital finance space. And then to actually accomplish that, uh, we uh, developed definitions, criteria for things like fairness, accessibility, inclusivity, um, attributes of finance, which include privacy, uh, transparency, safety, yeah. <laughs> and, and security. So um, we've built out a testing framework or an evaluation framework for um, financial products um, across the board and then are building out a series of modules to address different kinds of um, products. So payments, digital lending, um, or lending apps, like uh, yep. newer products like buy now, pay later. Um, we'll get into virtual currencies and, and things like that. Um, what we're trying to do is stand up a regular way and an independent way of evaluating the products and services to say, okay, well, how do they rate? How are they actually helping consumers? Which ones are better? If you use Apple Pay versus Google Pay, is there a difference? Um, and then putting this information out there into the ecosystem. Yeah, I have to tell you that this is um, really welcome from my lens because I, we work with a lot of fintechs uh, kind of day in and day out. And 
there are differences between them, but it is sometimes really challenging for the consumer or the business who's who's consuming it to really understand what the field looks like for one, and then what are the differentiation points. Um, yeah. I find this particularly in regards to I think one of the things you touched on in in the safe kind of definition is a really around I'll call it the the digital or cyber. Uh, protections of data as an identity and so forth, and the transportability of of that uh, of that data. I mean, really, from a consumer's viewpoint, uh, sometimes they don't think of it. They may think of a product as well. Is it safe for me? Meaning, is the is that company going to stay uh, in business as opposed to, gosh, what do they really do with my data? How does yeah. it get sold or manipulated and used in other ways? So. Um, yeah, I think this is a perfect space uh, for uh, consumer reports. You have such a reputation of of the independence piece also that is, I think it really brings strong credibility to to, uh, to the various niches of products that you're looking at. Um, so now for the for really in your in your history, you've worked in kind of that consumer advocacy and education piece. And it's interesting when I think about this, the the ecosystem of a bank, and particularly when we think of uh, financial well-being for a particular uh, uh, consumer, gosh, there there are so many different players in this ecosystem and consumer reports to weigh in on this. When you think of kind of your role um, at CR, as well as you have banks and credit unions and reporting agencies, how do you think of uh, that ecosystem, particularly when it as it pertains to financial well-being. So I, that's a great question. We think about um, the ecosystem as <laughs> you know, not to be literal, but all of the players and actors, right? Um, we think about traditional financial services as well as uh, fintech, right? And I would say increasingly that's less of a distinction because even with um, some of the smaller, more community-based institutions, the business model, um, as you know, has evolved where to remain relevant, accessible, competitive. Small financial institutions also have to be part of the fintech um, conversations and you know, fintech has to be accessible to communities and there's a lot of work to be done there. We also think about it from the perspective of the regulatory community. Okay. Um, one of the things that informs how I approach this work is um, thinking about some of the limitations and missed opportunities at being at the CFPB. And one of the things that I often say is that um, the CFPB, particularly coming um, out of the, being birthed out of the last crisis, really had an opportunity to shape and set standards for innovation and bring together that ecosystem and, and really work cooperatively. And I think there were some things achieved, but in particular around the question about the direction of innovation and what it could achieve for consumers, I, I do see that as a missed opportunity. Um, that said, it was the CFPB um, that uh, developed the financial well-being score um, working with um, other organizations and really helped to um, anchor this concept and develop some concrete um, metrics there. And so I think what we can do, frankly, is then develop an empirical based approach, right? So an evaluation um, 
strength-based approach to examine precisely for that. Um, so financial well-being is one of the principles in our evaluation framework. Um, I often refer to our framework as, on the one hand, looking at regulatory issues, right? So sure. baseline, the floor is products should um, be responsible and should adhere to uh, the regulatory requirements. So we examine for those things. But then on the other side, what do they do for consumers? How do they um, help consumers achieve their goals? How do they help consumers manage through periods of, of stress um, and um, economic um, volatility, life changes, um, financial security challenges, um, which really gets at the crux of um, financial well-being. So financial well-being is one of the principles on that side of our uh, evaluation frameworks. And those are some of the um, criteria that we would look at to see, okay, in an app, what are the things that uh, companies set out to do? And then how do they actually achieve that? Yeah, that is really fantastic from my viewpoint. And that is, um, obviously, there are regulations that are out there um, to the letter of the law that, that you consider. But then there's the technical aspects that we talked about relative to data and cyber. The thing that's, I'll say, heartwarming, but then stepping back to say, what's the values approach to this? Does it really do what it says it's going to do? Or infers, like whether it's building credit history or saving or access? Um, I think that's really where the rubber meets the road and having consumer reports and that, that independence kind of lends to it really adds some credibility to uh, gosh, where do I go for financial services, particularly if I'm I'm looking to enter the system for the first time yeah. or I've been I've been shut out before. Where are there ways and avenues in which to uh, to access it? So, Delisa, one last question for you, just in regards to that framework. Is that live now or consumable now or is that uh, in development? Where where can a consumer think to get that information? Yeah. So I think by the time this airs, it will be live. So oh, it will cool. be on um, our website, um, consumerreports.org. Um, and we will be launching the initiative next week, actually, um, oh, with a series of limited applications of this. So we're going to be um, scientific and, and data um, driven in our approach in that we have a framework that we've developed um, and we've got different uh, modules and we started to test the framework. Um, and then once we've worked uh, the bugs through, um, then we'll probably have a, a second round launch where it's just, we're gonna iterate over time, right? Um, our job primarily is to keep up with the marketplace and all the changes out there. So um, over this year, we're gonna be doing a series of limited releases reflecting um, what the framework could do. So the one that we'll start off with in mid-January or next week um, is looking at peer-to-peer -peer payment apps and then subsequently, we will do a release in the spring um, that focuses on buy now, pay later. We'll then roll into um, looking overall at banking apps, um, comparing traditional apps uh, and looking at newer entrants, um, digital only um, banks and other kinds of financial institutions. And then we'll also look at um, 
digital asset type uh, companies such as crypto wallets, crypto exchanges. So well, fantastic. Well, that, yeah, there's quite the field in which to uh, to keep track of there. Um, so final question for you, given your background uh, now at Consumer Reports and the CFPB and your law background and, and the such, what does the next generation of banker look like to you? Yeah, I'm so glad that you all are asking that question, you know, because um, it's such an important moment to ask that question. Banking um, as a service <laughs> tradition um, is is changing. Um, you probably know that better than I. And so I would say the, the next generation of, of banking um, should think about the consumer, should think about millennials, Gen Zers, um, and then the interaction across generations. What does a person who saw their parents survive um, the Great Recession, who survived, you know, who's growing up in a post-pandemic world, need from a financial perspective? Um, was a person who was birthed into an environment where because of COVID, their parents never went to um, a bank branch and um, are now primarily using apps and other facilities. Um, if that pattern holds, they are going to grow up in a very different way and have a different relationship with a banking institution, an important one, um, but different. So the next generation um, bankers should be thinking about engaging um, with the consumer where they are. And if they're walking around, you know, whether we like it or not, um, looking at their phones, maybe that banking relationship um, looks very differently. Yeah, that's fantastic. Thanks. It is interesting, too, to reflect in regards to what recent events like the pandemic, how they've changed the the consumption of, of financial services and, and what does that mean? And that's just not a one time event. It's uh, the generation that is now and and uh, a younger generation who yeah. is modeling it. Right. And so that all comes into play. Yeah. Well, Delicia, thank you so much for your time today. Pleasure speaking to you uh, about banking and finance and uh, the industry and, and consumer reports. So uh, for the Next Gen Banker audience, thanks for listening uh, to the podcast, and we will see you soon. That's it for another week of the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show, Breaking Banks. This episode was produced by our US-based production team, including producer Lisbeth Severins, audio engineer Kevin Hersham, with social media support from Carlo Navarra and Sylvie Johnson. If you like this episode, don't forget to tweet it out or post it on your favorite social media. We'll leave us a five-star review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Facebook, or wherever it is that you listen to our show. Those actions help other people find our podcast, and in return, that helps us build an audience that can be supported by sponsorship so we can continue to provide you with our award-winning content every week. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you on Breaking Banks next week.